During the protracted parliamentary tussles over Brexit between 2016 and 2020, I was repeatedly disturbed to realise quite how little I understood about how the British parliamentary system worked. What did it mean to prorogue? What was an urgent question? How much chance did a rebellion or an amendment or a rebellion over an amendment have of succeeding? And why was I investing all my hope in an unelected chamber, which still included bishops and hereditary peers, somehow saving British democracy? In How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, Ian Dunt blows the cobwebs out of the arcane nooks and crannies of the British political system, demystifying it with his clear, compelling and entertaining prose. He then goes on to unsettle the reader in a completely new manner by shining a light upon how the system as it stands does not, in fact, work, and indeed is often designed not to work. Not only that, but how it is barely understood by the very people, the members of Parliament, that we elect to work there, and how this lack of understanding is also in many ways intentional. How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't is the kind of book that leaves the reader feeling more knowledgeable, as you would hope, but also angrier and more energised, more equipped to engage, to argue, and who knows, perhaps even to change things for the better. Ian, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin with the the concept, the how it doesn't part of the book. Was that always part of the project from the start? Or was there kind of throughout your research, did you realise that it was kind of a necessary companion whenever talking about the mother of parliaments, as it's known? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I would have written it unless I thought that it wasn't working. I suspect that I wouldn't have thought there was the social utility, the purpose of it. Um, I would have wanted someone else to write a book on how everything works, but I wouldn't necessarily have thought that's the kind of thing that I would want to do myself because I I think I'd probably, Mm -hmm. if I'm completely honest, find it quite boring to just sort of do a tour of a system going, and this is all going swimmingly well. (laughs) No need Uh. to change any of this stuff. Um, So like the, the moral and the emotional drive came from the how it doesn't. But, the, but mm. the intellectual part came predominantly from how it works, because it just it's one of those sort of odd things where you think, let me put it this way, like I would do these sort of like long sort of Twitter threads on legislation or on those Brexit parliamentary mm. debates. And occasionally people would ask me questions as it was happening, really quite rudimentary questions like, like you mm. know, what is the usual channels and how is that the thing that has just decided how long we've got for this next stage? And I would just think, I don't actually know the answer to that question. And I am obviously completely broken as a human being. I mean, I'm sat here at sort of, you know, <laughs> 11 o'clock at night tweeting away about a parliamentary debate. So if I don't know, presumably almost no one knows. And that mm-hmm. seems just democratically like a disastrous state to have somehow found yourself in. So really, you could go to, I think you could say nine out of 10, maybe more newspaper readers in Britain probably would have no idea what the stages of a bill are. And that just seems tremendously unhealthy. So there was a thing of like, okay, so let's actually try to make it as clear as possible, as easy to understand as possible how the system works. But also we do emotionally and morally have to start asking ourselves, how have things gone so terribly wrong in the way that we're governed? And those two questions ultimately lead us to the same place. Now, I I said I was struggling to understand it over these few years, and I should put my cards on the table. I am a politics graduate, admittedly from like 20 years ago. But like the the first semester, I think, the entire first semester of my politics degree was about how the British parliamentary system worked. And I, I think I came away from that with an idea that sort of, okay, there will be certain people who come along and test it to its limits and you'll have people, I don't know, like Boris Johnson, who who will see what they can get away with within the system. But that the system is essentially functional, or at least as functional as other modern Western liberal democracies. And one of the most striking things you realise when reading your book is that this is not the case at all, in fact, and that it's so fundamentally dysfunctional that it's a surprise in a sense that anything works at all. Is this idea that us, even people who have like quite an interest in politics, if we just assume that somebody knows what they're doing, is that part of the underlying grift in a sense of the British parliamentary system? Yeah, that's interesting, right? There's, there's a, I think that there's a peculiarly British daydream that someone somewhere knows what's going on and is taking mm-hmm. care of things. Um, <laughs> and it's it's incidentally it is not true but for various times people think oh it's a civil service or it's the ministerial class or or you know now probably on sort of parts of the right that would be called the deep state you know mm-hmm. which would at least have a sort of reassuring tinge to it because it seems so chaotic and everyone seems so palpably inept 
you sort of think, well, if, if we're all still, if it's still floating as an island, then surely someone somewhere knows what's going on. The, the horrible answer is that they absolutely do not. There is also, um, in the constitutional literature, I'm, and I mean going all the way back, so, you know, from Walter Badgett, you know, all the way forward, you know, even Harold Lasky to, to now, you find this deep sense of complacency about the British yeah. constitutional arrangements, primarily based on this sort of really tedious and irrelevant historical sort of nothingness, this sort of idea of like, oh, well, we haven't had a revolution and, you know, it's a very stable country and it's never turned into a dictatorship. So therefore it must be all right. And you sort of think, right, okay. But I mean, the outcomes that we're getting are very, very bad outcomes and they have constitutional reasons behind them. So all of the constitutional literature, as far as it exists, and there's really very little of it, is <laughs> very complacent starts from the assumption that Britain is the best and has done the best system. Therefore, how can we possibly work our way into describing the manner in, in which it is so good? And, and it's tremendously unreassuring, actually, to read all of it. Uh, so, yeah, we do. We have a sort of strange, almost ghost-like, quasi-conspiratorial sense mm -hmm. of something. someone somewhere is making things go right. But we are absolutely wrong about that in every instance. And that was going to be my next question, actually. One thing you don't specifically identify in the book is if there is one thing which is perhaps the root cause of all the rot. And I was wondering, could it be something built into the system like first past the post, which we'll definitely come on to talk about. But I get a sense from what you're saying that it could also be the sort of an attitude thing. It's not one specific uh, systemic thing, but actually just something about the way the psyche, at least of the British political class works. I think that's spot on. So you know, if, if I had to put it in one word, I would say the problem is machismo. Mm. It is a vision of politics that is about, uh, I have the best answers. I will force them through. I will win. It is non-consensual. It's non-moderated. It's uncompromising. And at every stage, it systematically excludes any of the kind of open systems that would allow you to improve a piece of legislation or even an mm. idea. So in different countries, you have different ways of doing this, right? Like the Americans have first past the post, just like we do, the same electoral system. Uh, but they have the separation of powers. Mm. You know, the president finds it very hard to control Congress. Congress has a monopoly on passing laws. When a bureaucrat works in the US, they're working for Congress, not like in the right. UK, where the civil service works for the government. Um, then you take countries, you know, if you look at somewhere like the Netherlands or you look at somewhere like Germany. Now, in those cases, I mean, for a start, you have a lot, as you do in the US, a split between central and local power. So you have, mm -hmm. you know, in Germany, you'll have local decision making, local lawmaking that can't be influenced by the center. But more importantly, you have proportional representation. The first thing you get when you get proportional representation is you get parties being forced to work together, to compromise, to try to come up with a system that they can both live with. You have parties who think, I'm not going to be out of power forever, no matter how small I am as a party. There's a very good mm -hmm. chance I'll be in power sometime soon in the next five, 10 years. Therefore, you get a different attitude towards law. It's not just, can I stop it or can I complain about it? It's, okay, I don't agree with the manner in which you're doing this, but I do understand you have a right to pass the legislation. Can I suggest the following improvements and a sort of constructive adversarialism? Now, mm -hmm. in all of these cases, you have these different checks and balances, these different sort of adversarial contacts that allow you to improve the propositions, improve the legislation. Britain doesn't have any of those things. It doesn't have any split, really, between central and local power. I mean, you, local government barely exists. It certainly mm. can't do, you know, pass any of its own laws. It's a completely centralized country. It doesn't really have any split in the division of power. The legislature has been completely captured by the executive. And because the first-past-the-post system hands this massive majority to whoever's in power, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to mm. listen to any amendments. They don't have to negotiate. They can just bludgeon it through. So in every constitutional way you look at it, what you get is just pure, undistilled machismo. And that has led us to this culture of just, I know what's right. 
I will force it through. I'm not interested in the evidence base. I'm not interested in hearing about critical voices. I don't want someone telling me what might possibly go wrong with it. We're just going to get on and do it. And surprisingly enough, what you get when you do that is not very strong, very stable outcomes. What you get is just <laughs> disaster after disaster after disaster, almost all of it perfectly foreseeable. And we're going to come on to unpick some of those uh, specific disasters um, in a moment. But before we do, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the the research of the book itself, because you said you were writing these late night Twitter threads and you realised there was a lot you, you didn't know. Could you just talk a little bit about how then you got to a stage where you felt that you did know enough that you could explain to, to the everyday reader how this quite impenetrable system worked? Yeah, so um, so I started with with all of the the really quite dry uh, sort of textbooks on mm -hmm. the, the technicalities of how the civil service works, how Parliament works, how the Treasury works. Bone dry. Those are some of the worst months of my life. Uh, <laughs> because really, they, they give you very little to go on there. Um, and all of that is available. They're mostly quite expensive and hidden away in libraries. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it is available to people. It's not mainstream publishing. Um, and once that was there and I had a pretty clear idea of the systems, pretty clear, although it has to be said that in the British system, so much of it is mercurial and informal mm. and vendable that, that there's only so much a textbook can give you there. Then I did sort of the first tranche of interviews. So maybe 50, 60 interviews at that stage. Okay. Um, so politicians at all light and civil servants, journalists, uh, ministers, you know, across the landscape. Um, then I went back and once... Once you have that first tranche of interviews, you've got a much clearer idea of where you're going with the narrative, with the storyline. Mm -hmm. And you then go and do a second wave of research, a second wave of interviews. And that's really, by the end of that, you got your first manuscript. So by the mm -hmm. end, I think I was looking at sort of, it's over 100 interviews. I can't remember how many it is in total, about half of which are on the record and about half of which aren't. Um, okay. And in total, I mean, dozens of books and reports and think tank reports and inquiry reports and select committee reports uh, and all the sort of thing like that. So I have to say it was a it was a, a pretty bruising year of largely extremely tedious research <laughs> spiced up occasionally by having drinks with an MP where they became more colourful and revelatory than I anticipated they would be. Well, that's what I was wondering about the interviewees, because um, from a f off the top of my head, there's a few names from the across the spectrum. I think there's I think Neil Kinnock is in there. I think Nick Clegg, I think Johnny Mercer. So Two questions, I guess. Did you find that generally people were were willing to talk and quite ready to spill about the the problems in Parliament? And secondly, how able generally were they able to articulate the the problems of, of, of the system of which they they become a part? That's really really interesting. First of all, they're mostly willing to talk. Mm. Not all of them. Some of them won't talk to you because. You know, this book is written in a non-right-left, non-remain-leave perspective. Uh, I, you know, it's not a tribal book. And technically, anyone from any position should be able to sign up to the values that I'm expressing. Like, you know, there should be scrutiny of legislation. Mm -hmm. um, right. But, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm quite outspoken on Twitter and in my work. Mm -hmm. And so there'll be plenty that just don't want to talk to me because they just think, well, you know, you just we're not on the same side. And, and right. why would I have anything to do with you? I think others would be quite nervous about speaking in general, about what it would do to mm -hmm. their careers, and, and others just simply wouldn't think there's any problems with the system as it is. That last group would be quite large. Um, I, I'd say MPs in general are not... They're not instinctively abstract thinkers. Right. Uh, the same goes for journalists, by the way. You have to really push them, I think, to think of the system that they're in in abstract terms and, you know, how it might be done better rather than just what are the practical outcomes you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. They're also largely very partisan. I mean, obviously, you know, they're, they're <laughs> <Yeah>. politicians. <laughs> um, so th th it, their brain doesn't naturally go to a place of mm -hmm. on a system level, how can we improve this? It's, it's mostly how, for my party. What can I do to improve things for my party? However, that being said, I was surprised by, you know, the, the lucidity of, of some interviewees, inc including people that I didn't think were necessarily capable of it. And I was surprised as well by the, the bravery of many of them. I mean, some of these mm -hmm. MPs, you know, you'll see in the book, I, I've called them a former minister and they're now a minister again, or I called them a minister and they're no longer a minister. Because as I was writing it, right, I was writing under <laughs> the Johnson administration 
then the Truss administration, then the Sunak administration. When I finished Good luck it. with that. I mean, that yeah, I mean, it was quite changeable circumstances as I was writing. Um, and they, you know, for these guys, that, that has a lot of meaning because yeah. each new administration that comes in is another opportunity for you to get a ministerial job. And it won't necessarily have been very wise for you to have spoken very clearly to a journalist about what you think is wrong with the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those situations, I was really impressed by how many of them were just like, no, I'm fine to talk about it. I'm not going to ask you to take those quotes back or to try and get rid of them, even though I'm a minister now, or even though I'm not a minister. I, they were, they, I accept that it's a minority of people that I'm speaking to, but for many of them, I was really quite impressed with the honesty and the conviction with which they spoke about these issues, even though it could have done them a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Although I guess in a way it was perhaps a self-selecting group, like the people who would see the interest in the the proposition and the yes. interest in the project are likely to be the ones who are perhaps more capable of abstract or theoretical thought, or maybe even sort of self-criticism. I completely agree. And also I'm looking for them, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm picking, you know, Rory Stewart and Lisa right. Nandy and David Lammy to speak to, it's because I've seen something in them that that indicates that there's an active internal life there that is questioning <laughs> the circumstances in which they find themselves. Whereas, you know, that there are massed ranks of hundreds of obedient sort of MPs that I've seen and think very, very little of and would not have bothered trying to talk to because I don't think they've got much to offer. So, so the self-selection of it sort of operates in both ways, really. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of people that I've asked to talk and also the kind of people who would be prepared to talk in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually comes on to the, the the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the kind of the type of people who become MPs, which is something which you go into in quite detail, quite a lot of detail near the beginning of the book. And I think it's something which, again, we don't as normal punters give a lot of thought to actually how somebody becomes an MP and indeed becomes a candidate yeah. to become an MP. I think we often obsessed with this idea of sort of somebody goes into politics because they're a person of principle and then they impress on a local level and they get elected and then they go in and they, uh, you know, they, they kind of carve out their career in parliament. But one thing that becomes clear, and this is again across the party divide, is how the way these parties are structured and the way these systems are structured will not only attract a certain type of person, but will also perhaps filter out a lot of the more interesting and perhaps original thinkers who might be interested in politics, because ultimately that's not what the parties want. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And in fact, you could, you know, you could almost write a book from the perspective of an independent minded, knowledgeable MP uh, as a series of tragedies, as a series of sort of (laughs) obstacles put in their way to make sure that they never have the slightest influence in anything Mm -hmm. that is taking place because the system will prevent them from doing it from the beginning of their career right until the bitter end, you know, from the point that they try to be selected as an MP, right through to the point that they would try to put even the most modest amendment on a piece of legislation. They will be stopped at every single stage of that journey from being able to participate in the political system. So when one of them does come through, and there are some, you know, Stephen Timms, for instance, I mentioned Mm. in the book, would be, you know, would know about as much about social security as anyone in that building. It's kind of a miracle that they get through. But even then, they're completely neutered by the end. I mean, it's impossible for them to really contribute. Um, and you, I mean, the barriers to them at the point of becoming the MP are huge. And that, again, plays into the electoral system. You know, about two thirds of the constituencies in Britain haven't changed hands, you know, for decades. You know, they just will not change. They will always be Tory. They'll always be Labour. So it doesn't really matter what happens at the election. What matters is what happens in the selection process for who the MP is going to be months ahead of the election, even years ahead of the election. And that isn't to do with the public. It's to do with a a few people in a room that no one gets to look into. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a three stage process for it. The first stage is a party HQ where they just decide who can even apply to a local seat to become the MP. And that will be the stage that most of the most interesting people are completely wiped out of any of the contests as it is. The second stage will be from what's usually called a selection committee in the local party for the local constituency that they're going for. And that'll be about a dozen people, a dozen people, you know, in a room with no standards, no checklist of what they're looking for, no need to tell anyone, no transparency at all, just deciding, right, we're going to whittle it down to six names or maybe two names, and they'll just do it without anyone finding out any details as to why or how or on what basis they did so. 
And then the final part will be hustings, which is essentially a debate of the local party, where they pick from the last few candidates who's going to be the person to stand. And even in that case, which is by far the most democratic, uh, you're dealing with, you know, at most about a tenth of the membership of a local party. Mm-hmm. And the local parties, you know, in most of these cases, they have like 150 people in them. You know, these are tiny, tiny, tiny organizations. If you put the membership of all of the five main parties in the country together, it's still only a fifth mm-hmm. of what you would have of the membership of the National Trust. These are tiny right minuscule organizations so at every stage of that process someone who's independent minded will be ignored someone who can demonstrate that they have a lot of um, knowledge or experience or deep specialization in a subject area will be ignored because at no point is anyone testing for those qualities and also the the people who are doing the testing the party members i was astonished by the statistic you wrote that and this is just from a perspective of ethnicity but that white people make up 97% of the tory membership 96% of the labor and liberal democrat membership so even mm. so e- even if you are so say there is an element of it which you know is vaguely democratic at the end that's still a very skewed view of the populace that's actually making that decision Oh, yeah. And, and and the same for age. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the average age is, is sort of around 57. Right. For the parties, I mean, they're, they're really quite old. Um, apart from Labour, Labour has 48% women. But apart from that, the others, women generally make up about a third. I mean, mm. these are not representative slices <laughs> of national life. And they're also not representative, by the way, in, um, in their manner of thinking about the world. Uh-huh. They are... You know, they're campaigners. Uh, this should not be surprising, and I get that it isn't. But but over and over again, when we ask them for their opinions on politics, they are hugely much more likely to think that organizations and individuals can change the world than an average member of the public. Mm. Now, that's interesting, because what it, what it indicates is you're looking at a bunch of partisans, okay? For good or ill, they're partisans, and they think like partisans. So right. who do they give? these positions to. They give it to local campaigners. They give it to local party chair people. They give it to assiduous networkers. They give it to people who are basically like them. You know, they want mm-hmm. some local, you know, origin. But apart from that, they basically give it to people who want to hand out a lot of leaflets to other mm-hmm. campaigners, to other partisans. But then on the other side of the election, suddenly there's this sort of thunderclap and everything changes and everyone's like, oh, right. And now the job of an MP is to scrutinize legislation. Right. And you think... <laughs> Well, that's extraordinary because no one mentioned that at any part of the selection process. (laughs) It never comes up. It's not part of the criteria for how we select these people. So it's almost as if we've developed a sort of a system for selecting people that has zero bearing on the Mm -hmm. thing that we're ultimately asking them to do. And the way in which they are then elected. We've mentioned the first past the post system several times. My impression is whenever this comes up in the book, it struck me that the first past the post system seems to be one of the most fundamental things underlying many of the problems that we face in the political system. Like the, the, the vast majority of votes, particularly in certain seats, don't really count for anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, two thirds of the votes in the country are ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're ignored in two ways. I mean, they're either ignored because you voted for someone who didn't win. In which case, you might as well have just not voted, which, you know, I mean, for the record, for instance, in my life, I've, I've never lived in a marginal constituency. I've, uh-huh. I've never, ever had an election where my vote was of any consequence uh-huh. or I was under any illusions as to which way it would go. I've never actually felt franchised personally. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. vast majority of people in this country would have had exactly the same experience. I, I grew um, up in Bournemouth, so, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, you got to <laughs> no, say no more, right? Thing? Okay. Right. You see, this is the funny thing, right? So, so now, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, you, it was typically, I mean, even, even in the last household, oh, you know what? That doesn't work anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, but my previous sort of constituency was in Kensington. And actually, mm-hmm. that has become marginal now that I've left. I don't think I was the qualitative <laughs> change, but actually that has become marginal. Back in the day, it would always, always be Tory. And, you know, I would, at that point, I was not voting Tory. Now I'm here in a constituency which will always, always, always vote Labour in North London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I often am voting Labour, but it doesn't make it any different because I'm right. still equally disenfranchised. And this is the other way that votes are wasted, which is any vote that you have for the winner above the one they needed to win 
is also completely wasted. It doesn't mm-hmm. add up to any national totals. It doesn't go anywhere. So it's particularly pernicious for urban seats. So you think about places like Merseyside, around Manchester, around London, where you get just tens of thousands of Labour votes just piling up in seats that have already been won. Mm. And that gives you the key as to what the the first-past-the-post system is. It's not a system for counting votes and creating a government on the basis of those votes. It is a system for assessing the most efficient geographical distribution of votes Mm. and selecting a government on that basis. And the party that wins is the party that gets the most efficient distribution of its vote. That is, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think it's funny, there's a lot of terrible things the first past the post does, especially to to the manner in which government is conducted. But I sort of feel like the argument ends there. I mean, the (laughs) point where where you can say the words, two-thirds of the votes are completely irrelevant to the outcome. Right. <laughs> it's the point where you say, well, there's, something has gone wrong with this system. This cannot mm. be a tolerable way for, for us to organise our politics. And on the flip side, you write at a moment that living in a marginal constituency can quite literally save your life because the, the way the resources uh, by the governing parties are targeted at specific seats that they want uh, to win or that they want to keep hold of, you find the hospital funding or something is higher in that a constituency, even though perhaps it doesn't need as much funding as, as somewhere else is always going to vote for one particular party or another. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's 20% more likely to have two hospitals um, on the basis <laughs> of its marginality as a seat. And I mean, the, the key test with this stuff, and, and as you say, that leads to changes in health outcomes and especially in your chances of surviving a heart attack. So, I mean, you know, if, <laughs> if, if anyone's thinking of moving or buying a house in the UK, what they should look at <laughs> is how marginal the constituency is, <laughs> along with the school catchment area and the property yeah. prices. And the risk of heart disease in the family, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Put together an Excel spreadsheet of that and you'll have a good outcome and the the way that you can tell sort of how viable that stuff is if you look at education none of it holds because that you know we don't have national politicians making decisions on where schools are open Mm -hmm. but when it comes to hospitals it does hold and that gives you a pretty good impression of the way that resources are directed towards marginal seats it's not pure it's not easy there's other sort of factors there but but ultimately it does have that distorting effect now, there are two phrases that kept cropping up in my notes as I was going over them. And uh, I should I should warn you, neither of them good about the, the system. The first one was uh, lack of expertise. And the, the second one was fundamental lack of seriousness. And I think probably mm. a, quite a toxic combination together. But let's let's begin with with lack of expertise, which you've already talked about a little bit in how um, MPs are selected. But at one moment, you write, the British political system rewards short term tactics over long term strategy irrationality over reason, amateurism over seriousness, generalism over specialism, and gut instinct over evidence. They do not know what they are doing. They do not even attempt to know what they're doing. And then when things go wrong, they do not learn from what happened. Um, How did we get here? Because this is not something which is just a case with politicians. You go into quite a lot of detail about how the civil service as a as a structure is also an institution, an organisation that doesn't value expertise. What is it that creates a system, both of elected politicians and employed civil servants, that neither of them value specific expertise? I do think that one follows from the other. The if politicians demonstrated a desire for it, mm. if ministers wanted it, they would get it. Right. And we can kind of um, we can kind of test that because th- there's there's a thing called a SPAD, a special advisor, mm-hmm. which is this sort of very odd, quite modern political creation of they're hired by the minister, they work with the civil service, but they're not part of the civil service, not really. Right. They're free from impartiality rules. Um, And the ministers can pick whoever they like. And it was originally envisaged that these guys would bring expertise, that you'd have all these sort of John Maynard Keynes come into civil service. And in fact, that is not what you get. When the the politicians pick who they want, they basically bring in a bunch of people to handle the media and a bunch of people that, you know, create a sort of party political membrane around them, assessing what the civil service are saying in terms of how useful it is to the party. Um, Party of politics, basically. Uh, Now, that's telling because it tells us what ministers want. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the civil service, it seems to reflect ministers almost in every detail. 
They move every approximately every two years to a new position. Someone who's seen to be a high flyer, who's very impressive, isn't someone who stays for a long time mastering, uh, let's say, sort of tran- transport contracts. Mm-hmm. It's someone who can do, oh, they've negotiated with the EU here, and oh, they've done this on fiscal policy over here, and oh, they've done this on the Washington summit over here. A high flyer is someone who shifts what they're doing. I mean, even two years would be considered a long time. Many of them mm-hmm. start looking for a new job after nine months. Right. So that gives us an indication of what it is that politicians want. They don't want people with expertise because people with expertise can challenge them. People mm-hmm. with expertise will be able to sit there and go, well, hang on a minute. If you do that, you're going to have a problem over here. Actually, this isn't really how, wel- how welfare payments work. This is going to have a very serious knock-on effect on single family. They don't want to hear any of that. They basically just want professional amateurs, which is essentially mm-hmm. what the ministers are themselves. So I, I sort of think it, it has happened as a result of the fact that it's, it's exactly what ministers wanted. And now mm-hmm. they've got it. It's a disastrous state of affairs. But the blame, you know, we, we can blame the civil service for its defects, and we should, because it has known about its problems since at least the 1960s and done absolutely nothing to fix them. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the blame has to lie with ministers and with governments because they've got the kind of system that they wanted. And in part, you think they want this system. And maybe I'm going to expose a little bit of my class prejudices here. But so much of this seems (laughs) to remind me of the kind of thing you associate with people who've been to some of the so-called elite public schools in in Britain. I suppose for me, like David Cameron was a big exemplar of that, who was just confident in his position as a generalist who could fudge his way through. Do you think this again comes back to this sort of attitude that we talked about at the beginning and where we draw our political class from? Yes, I do. But I think there's more there as well. So the the talent pool, I mean, incidentally as well, the talent pool for politicians and civil servants is is almost exactly the same. I mean, they're basically Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, bright young things out from university. They are overwhelmingly humanities students. it's quite rare that you get someone with a background in the hard sciences, mathematics, or technical backgrounds. It doesn't really happen. They all seem to have the same skill, which is um, the ingenious manipulation and selection of words to paper over disagreements. <laughs> and that is there in the tests to become an, to be selected as an MP. Mm-hmm. It's there in the test to join the civil service fast stream. We're essentially picking from a slice of sort of hyper-educated, predominantly middle-class humanities students. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I'm allowed to say this because I am a hyper-educated, predominantly middle-class <laughs> humanities student. <laughs> you know, but, and it's like, that's fine. There should be some of that in the world. But you, you don't really want to run a country just on people who are quite good at making arguments about, you know, the latest book that they read. <laughs> you, you kind of need more than that. You need specialist skills. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we show in the complete absence of in every part of the system. Another thing which seems to be across the board in the system is this kind of, I guess, mystification of the system, mystification of the processes, mystification of how things actually work. So you talk about the theory of the weak centre, which is this idea that actually the the prime minister doesn't really have any power at all. Um, and, mm. you know, you, you're, you're quite frank in saying that this is just not true. And in fact, quite the, quite the opposite is true. Um, or, you know, uh, you talk about how um, a piece of legislation, if you were actually to sit down and read it, there's very little chance that you would understand it. And that's not to do with any lack of education, but because most bills amend previous acts, they're actually just sort of these kind of footnotes to footnotes to, to footnotes. Um, yeah, again, yeah. How much do you think this this sense of mystification is sort of an intentional way to keep power in the hands that it has always been in? And how much of it is just sort of a product of the dysfunction of the system? It's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. No one specifically designed it this way, but it's useful for powerful people that it is this way mm-hmm. so it continues to be this way right you it, you would lose so much power over mps if they could easily navigate and understand the parliamentary process <laughs> because one of the chief sort of bits of the arsenal of the whips office the sort of discipline system for mps organized by the parties is the fact that they actually know what's going on 
<laughs> they know what the rules are in the Commons, which are basically impossible to understand for anyone. They know what each of the amendments and the legislation is about. Now, most MPs don't have any idea what they're voting on at any given moment. They report to the whips, the whips tell them where to go, and they go and do it. And they would not be able to tell you what they are voting on at any given moment. Um, why would you give up that degree of power? So, you know, when people have put forward ideas for just, for instance, Keeling schedules, Keeling schedules basically say, if you've got the current act is amending, let's say the act from 1986. So instead mm -hmm. of saying where it says, but replace with this, you instead have the original sort of paragraph of the original 1986 act as it would be amended. So you can just with have one document in front of you, see exactly what it is doing and not have to sit there with, you know, five, six different pieces of legislation referring to different parts where they're slipping in this and slipping in that. You would obviously do that. I mean, that is just on a very mm -hmm. basic level, a rational thing that you would do for the process of introducing legislation. The reason it is not done is because it would empower MPs to actually know what they're talking about. It would threaten that they might demonstrate some independent mindedness um, and some capacity for analysis in the legislative process. So it's prevented from happening. And I think the same is true for the public. It's not really in anyone's interest that the public understands what the hell is going on in Westminster. And so we continue with words and systems that make it almost impossible, not least because I think if the public did understand just what an absolute clown car it is, they would be <laughs> outraged by what they were seeing. I mean, you know, no one could, could fail to be outraged by what happens with legislation, what happens with statutory instruments. It is an mm -hmm. abominable state of affairs. So it's in everyone's interest to just make sure the public can't see that, that it's all covered in a sort of archaic terminology, rules that are kind of rules, but not rules, but maybe they're just conventions, but no one can quite say, but that's just how we do it. So it goes over there and you have to use this word. And if you're not doing that, then it hasn't worked. All of that wasn't built as a conspiracy, but it was mm -hmm. always useful to people in power that it was that way. So they've kept it that way. Mm -hmm. And that 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 um, idea of the statutory instrument and the secondary legislation again, which before I read your book, I I'd, I'd heard the terms, but I never quite been able to kind of muster up the uh, the energy to to find out what they yeah. are. And in, in in a way, they are very much kind of um, wolves in sheep's clothing, really. Like these are uh, almost, I guess, intentionally boring sounding processes, yes. which, according to your account, should give ministers extraordinary power not only to, to to change a law but to do so completely bypassing parliament yeah exactly and and essentially some lawmakers that you speak to now some people who literally write laws in civil service will say that basically there's almost this growing sense that legislation is this sort of unrealistically unwieldy way of mm -hmm. running a country and we're just sort of slipping into, let's just do the whole lot by statutory instruments. <laughs> and you can see them doing it. I mean, mm -hmm. last year, the government put forward a schools bill. Now, it ended up backing down on this, basically because they can't find their own arseholes. I mean, not really, I don't think it was a moral decision. It was just basically they got thrown into a state of panic. But the first 13 clauses of that bill said that all schools were going to be turned into maintained schools. And the policy for all maintained schools, including, you know, the national curriculum, the timing of the school day would be decided by ministers using statutory instruments. In other words, mm -hmm. without any involvement of parliament at all. It was essentially a bill that said, from now on, we're going to remove parliament from discussion of education policy. And you just think, like, where is your head at that mm -hmm. at any point you would have said that that was an acceptable thing to propose? You know, and, and it comes, I, I suspect, I mean, it was really bad before, you know, even in 2014, 2015, it was very, very bad. And they were putting forward things which really statutory instruments shouldn't have had anything to do with, including, you know, regulations on what kind of pornography is allowed. I mean, you're like, mm -hmm. fine, it, you should not be using these instruments for very controversial areas that impinge on people's lives. But after Brexit and after COVID, these things just completely took off. Brexit basically took huge amounts of European law and had to put them on the UK statute book. And in doing so, they just said, well, you know, the minister gets to just do whatever they want if they need to clean something up before, you know, we get to the day that we leave. So the powers they gave themselves were basically like, well, we can pass a statutory instrument for anything that was ever covered in European law. So, you know, all of aviation policy, 
all of public safety policy with chemicals, <laughs> you know, transport, you know, um, agriculture, all of it. Suddenly you're like, oh, ministers just have complete control over that now. And then, of course, you get COVID. And during mm. COVID, they use statutory instruments to restrain, you know, individual liberties. I mean, to the extent of whether you can leave your house or not. And just started passing all law through this mechanism to the point that they basically have now completely run out of control. They, they, they are, it, it's as if they've forgotten what legislation is originally for. And you can talk to people who are really quite conservative. I mean, mm -hmm. with a small C, you know, constitutionally, who don't think that there's huge problems with our system. You'll notice in the book, even the current speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, was very, very wary of all this. They're just sort of saying, well, no, hang on a minute. We've got major, major problems here, and we need to do something about it now because mm -hmm. we're at a bit of a tipping point as to whether you could even consider this a parliamentary democracy if you keep on passing law in this way. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you said earlier that one of the consequences of this mystification, if you like, is that the British public don't really get a sense of what is going on in Parliament. And I guess as a kind of corollary to that, we have what's happened to the press. Um, now, this is something which... Uh, I guess maybe it's unfortunate that it's happened at the same time that there's, there's been this kind of degradation in parliamentary scrutiny and things like that. We've also had a degradation in the in the press, in the way that news is produced and in the way that news yeah. is paid for. So that anything which would involve the level of research and the level of investment and the level of uh, scrutiny that sort of exposing this type of uh, type of behaviour would require is no longer really possible with the the financial model that our, our newspapers now now work under. Yeah, I mean it, it's we got we just got killed out there and we got killed on the money in journalism. Mm -hmm. It absolutely slaughtered us. And that is is the internet, you know, and you, you can't reverse engineer this and it's not going to go away and now there are some solutions to it although they have their own problems. But we got killed on the money. Um, there was a period, a sort of an almost, it was like the Garden of Eden before the internet, which is, you know, you had to pay for the newspaper. It wasn't just free online, but also the newspaper was, I mean, it, it was a product that sold itself twice, right? It sold mm -hmm. itself for the money that you paid to buy it, but then also it funded itself through the advertising that it had within right. it, including, most importantly of all, the classified advertising. You know, the music lessons over here and mm -hmm. this person's gotten married and you know, this guy's <laughs> looking for a job. Uh, and this is where I'm going to sell my car. Now, all of that brought in a huge amount of money, especially to local papers. And what that allowed was journalists to be able to write one story a day, to actually dig into it, to stay on a patch, you know, on a subject for a good, good long time to build up their contacts. Once the internet came, I mean, the first problem was the very rudimentary one mm -hmm. <laughs> that we stopped selling newspapers. <laughs> so, you know, you lost that income stream. Um, and then we had a second problem, which is... Uh, sort of a bit more existential, really, about what we are as a species, right. which is that we suddenly had a lot of information about uh, what people were reading. Before then, you know, if a story was in a newspaper, say, you know, you've got a story from Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to spend about a million pounds a year to keep someone in Iraq. You've got to keep them with the security detail. You're probably going to have to have an interpreter there. There's also, as well as the flights and everything else, it's really expensive to get reports from Iraq. Uh, but you would do it as a newspaper, right? Because your advertisers want to be associated with big, serious news brands. You know, a company mm -hmm. like, I don't know, like Rolls-Royce or BMW, they don't really care whether someone's reading the Iraq story, but the Iraq story is part of what makes the paper a paper of record, something important, something that tells you something fundamental about the world. Once we're internet only, we suddenly found out what people are reading. Before then, we didn't know whether they flipped over, right? And they weren't reading those stories. They weren't reading the stories from Iraq. You know, they would have read the stories about Iraq, at the, you know, during the invasion. But by the time you get to 2008, 2009, people had stopped reading those stories. But they would read stories about, you know, the latest scandal about, you know, a Hollywood celebrity mm -hmm. or, you know, some pop singer had said something online. And then there was a big row about what they said on Twitter. And this person had said something else about what that person said on Twitter. Now, the trouble is that story about the Twitter row, you can write that up in 30 minutes and it right. costs you nothing, absolutely nothing to produce. The story from the guy in Iraq costs you a million quid to keep him there over the year. It takes a really long time to produce. And it turns out no one's reading it. Mm -hmm. So that just destroyed the, you know, it's not even the financial model. It's like the social model 
of news, mm. its capacity to be serious and to hold power to account was significantly handicapped by the arrival mm. of the internet. Now we're, we're slightly improving because of people's ability to take on subscriptions and then you found willingness to take on subscriptions, but we're nowhere near where we were before. And so, yeah, you know, the, the function of the press to actually contribute to public understanding of politics has been severely diminished. Mm -hmm. And I guess it also kind of gets rid of that cumulative effect of journalism as well. It's easy now to look back at things like Watergate or things like the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and see the early stories, which maybe didn't really reveal much, but were just kind of you know the beginning of the digging. And they're the part of the historical record now. And if, if that is being mm -hmm. sort of cut off at source, then you're never going to get to the you know, the big Watergate revelation, for example. Exactly, exactly. So that, that's so beautifully put. There's an interview with um, Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The mm. Guardian in the book. And he's talking about that with Watergate. He says, you know, all we remember now is the Watergate thing, but Watergate was the result of month after month after month of tiny little details, just getting mm. it on the record, just shifting the, forward, the story forward just a little bit. And almost all the time that it was happening, people were saying, this is really boring. Like, what is right. this? You know, it's just <laughs> extremely tedious. It would not be getting a lot of traffic, right? You get the traffic when you hit the mother load. But mm. loads of that investigative work is not going to get an awful lot of attention. And it would always be in danger of boring the readers. Now, if you're in the point where you're hardly making any money and you can see all of the traffic going to a website and notice that your investigative team, who've currently produced nothing but these little incremental details about something going on in an office somewhere for month after month after month, you will not allow Watergate to happen because you're too scared of boring your readers in the first place. Right. We've sort of almost been dazzled by the Hollywood version of stuff like Watergate and forgotten just the kind of, you know, pull your sleeves up, menial, hard month on month work that goes into stories like mm -hmm. that before they become the ones that we remember. Yeah. Now we could talk for hours and hours and hours about all of the different ways that Parliament is 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 malfunctioning. Um, some of the um, most fascinating parts of the book, though, are these moments where there are some things that you you look at and you say, actually, this works, or when it, this thing when it existed, it did work, almost despite the the system. And it's fascinating to see that these mm. are all things which seem to focus on consensus and using evidence to get to that consensus. So you talk about the um, the delivery unit, which I think was set up under Tony Blair, if I remember rightly, or the yeah. um, the, the function of select committees, um, or I, which may come as a surprise to some listeners, the, the House of Lords as well. These are all things which, even within this system, um, seem to, to function like pretty well. Was that, I mean, particularly the last one, like the House of Lords, was that something that came as a surprise to you to discover that that was one of the things that uh, was actually the most functional and the most uh, sort of democratic of um, of institutions in, in Parliament? So I, I, I could tell that it was doing something right going into it because so often you would find yourself saying, oh, I can't believe the House of Lords is the one that stood up to the government when the House of Commons mm -hmm. can't do it. Yeah. And that started, you know, with Labour in charge, you know, when Labour were passing all of this sort of anti-civil liberties, really draconian authoritarian legislation, and the House of Lords would stand up to them. And it would continue, say, over Brexit or over sort of a breaking international law uh, under the Conservatives. Uh, but I had completely the wrong impression of why it was. I thought that it was because they couldn't bribe peers. You know, if it's an MP, you can bribe them if you're the whips pretty easily. You say, if you vote against this, then you're never going to have a ministerial post. So congratulations on being on the back benches for the rest of your career. Right. And that's how you get them to comply. I thought because the Lords were there for life, you didn't have that opportunity. And that, that mm. was the reason. I was completely wrong about that. The reason that it happens is because the Lords is everything that the Commons isn't. Right. It, I mean, for a start, it doesn't have, and this is the crucial part, it doesn't have a government majority in it. It has no main party in charge. So you have to go in and you have to try and convince parties to get them on board with what you're doing. You can't just bludgeon your way through as you can in the Commons because of the first-past-the-post system. The second thing it has is expertise. And this is the bit, I think a lot of people find this difficult because it is, it's not an anti-democratic point, but mm. it is a non-democratic point. It's about some of the good things that you can have in a political system that might be there, despite the fact that they are not reliant on democracy. Right. After Blair, we introduced the crossbench system. 
And that was non-party political peers, people who'd done something very impressive in their life, who would come in to the House of Lords. So former lawyers, former scientists, former artists, people who were volunteers, business people. Uh, and what we found was that they immeasurably improved the legislation that was put in front of them because they actually had deep specialist knowledge. And so it was almost... Who, who you know, have, uh, Like, I mean, it's incomprehensible that this could happen. So, you, you know, you have stuff like welfare reforms come in and suddenly you just get a bunch of people who actually know something about welfare who just tear it mm. apart. And you'll see the ministers, you know, the government basically just reduced to nothingness in the face of it. And then, and this is the crucial part, changing the legislation. Right. It's not just right. about the fact that the Lords can defeat the government, although that in and of itself is of pivotal importance because it will never happen in the Commons. Mm -hmm. It's about the fact that they can improve the legislation, mm -hmm. that they will sit there and over and over again, thousands of times in every session, you will see the government give way and either accept the amendment that's put to it by opposition or more likely come up with its own amendment to its legislation, which takes on board what the critical voices have been saying. Now, that never happens mm -hmm. anywhere else in the Houses of Parliament. The only place it happens is in the House of Lords. There is something special that is happening there, and it is about, it's about being open to critical voices. It's about being open to evidence and expertise and improving your ideas on the back of it. So for mm -hmm. that, yeah, it is... It's kind of astonishing and maybe a bit dispiriting, but the honest truth is you come out of having a look at our system and you think the House of Lords is kind of the only thing in there that's actually working. Mm -hmm. And now towards the end of the book, you give you you give some ideas of how how the system could be improved, how it could be reformed. Like when I was reading it, the, the, the thing that kept coming to mind for me was that that old joke about, you know, you ask somebody, oh, how do you get to wherever? And they go, well, firstly, I wouldn't have started from here. Like there's that really, <laughs> like, what, what, what could we, what, could potentially be the first steps to to making these improvements. And so looking at all of your research, if if there if there was one change that you think could potentially start a snowball effect that could lead to a better politics and a better system in the UK, what would be the the first change that you would make? I mean the first change is electoral reform. I mean it right. is. There's it's a very boring answer because it's quite a common one, but as you sort of said before, it is First past the post is something that corrupts at almost every single level of the system, but mm -hmm. primarily in just giving one party a huge majority on the basis of a minority of the vote. It is just a system that leads you to not taking on board critical voices and to plowing through regardless. So the first thing to change is that. But to give a slightly more interesting answer, I, if I could have one thing, I think it would be that I would give the Commons back control of its time. One of the most pernicious things that happens in the Commons, and one of the things that shows that we really don't have a division of power in Britain, is that the government controls the timetable. The mm -hmm. government decides what is debated and when and for how long for, and consequently decides that it wants to have its stuff debated for a very short period of time <laughs> until it can dispose of it, reducing any capacity for critical voices. Now, the main thing is that that is not what any self-respecting legislature should be functioning. That's just not how it should function. We need to give the Commons back its time before it was, frankly, stolen from it from, by the government in the Victorian period and mm -hmm. give it back some sense of its own autonomy, some attempt to prevent this almost infantilization of MPs. You sort of feel that they are now, they've become so used to being completely irrelevant in the legislative program that they've, don't even know how to do it anymore. You know, when mm -hmm. you provide them with a situation where they're supposed to be forensic and surgical in their assessment of something, they just make more kind of general speeches that they sort of hope someone's going to cut up and put on Twitter. You know, they, they really don't have the skills. And part of the reason they don't have the skills is because there is no forum in which they might use it. And the way to give mm -hmm. them back that forum is to give the Commons control of its time again. So I suppose mm -hmm. that I'd give electoral reform, and putting the Commons back in charge of its own affairs. They're both rather large proposals. But yeah, uh, those would be the two that I'd go for. Just to, just to finish, obviously, the last time we spoke um, a year or so ago was about uh, how to be a liberal, which for mm. our listeners who haven't, uh, haven't read it, it's kind of a history of the philosophy of liberalism and I guess a sort of an argument for the, the importance of this philosophy as well. And I must admit, when I first saw the, the subject matter and started reading How Westminster Works, I was wondering 
if there was a connection between these two works, if there was something that they were both feeding from um, a sort of a, let's say, a, a common pot in a way, like there was a thread that, that connected them. Do you see the books as being in some way related? Is having functional, robust political system necessary for liberalism to refine its place as an important political philosophy of our age? Thanks for asking that question, um, because I've, I've been very keen to answer it. <laughs> yeah, look, the origin of this book really is in a discarded chapter of How to Be a Liberal, which is on which is on a chapter a chapter on Popper, mm-hmm. and Popper's liberalism was essentially quite pragmatic and quite practical. But the belief at the heart of it is this idea of the open society is more efficient. Mm. That it's not just more moral to be open. It's more efficient. And if you have a closed society, you don't spot the problems because no one can announce them. You can't address them because they cannot be discussed. So ultimately, you know, no matter if we can look now and we might see that, you know, Russia or China or Saudi Arabia seem to be resurgent. Actually, they're always doomed to fail because Mm -hmm. they fundamentally can't spot the problems that are coming down the line. Now, in Britain, we think of ourselves as an open society, but our political arrangements are the arrangements of a closed society. You know, they are about preventing free debate. They're about allowing executive power to continue completely unrestricted by any of the core institutions that liberalism set up in order to restrain them. You know, when, when you referred earlier of like, isn't it funny that all these, um, you know, all these bits that work are based on sort of consensus and on evidence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, consensus is really the process that you're supposed to have through the liberal principles of free speech, right? Right. You know, it's not just supposed to be voices shouting at each other like rocks. It's supposed to be ultimately about synthesis at the end, that you take on board the parts of your opponent's argument, find something better. That's what happens in mature political systems when they try to improve legislation by listening to their critics rather than shutting them out. And the same with evidence. You know, liberalism was born, you know, with the scientific revolution, with this idea of we base our political ideas on reason and empiricism. And again, freezing that out of your political process <laughs> just means that you're hurtling yourself back to the dark ages <laughs> without an ability to have a serious assessment of an objectively existing world. So yeah, with, I, I would see this book as almost like an act of practical liberalism. Like The analysis mm. is taking liberal values and using them as the prism through which you look at existing political systems and seeing whether they live up to them and what the consequences are when they fail to do so. And with the um, with the risk of ending this conversation on a downer, um, what do you think of the chances are of any sort of significant reforms that will have any sort of impact in the the way that we've discussed? I think some people might hold out hope or did hold out hope that Keir Starmer seeming to be a sort of intelligent, uh, thoughtful person might uh, might edge towards electoral reform. But that doesn't seem to be part of his uh, part of his agenda. So I agree. He seems pretty small C conservative and doesn't really want to talk about constitutional stuff or electoral reform or anything like that. However, all the big changes happen when a new government comes in. Mm. 1979, creation of the modern select committee system. 1997, independence of the Bank of England. Um, the reform of the House of Lords to get it to the current status that it's currently in. 2010, the implementation of some of the right committee report the bolstering, the strengthening of the select committees, the creation of the Office of Budget Responsibility. Like, it happens when a new government comes in and some of the idealistic things that it said in opposition, it actually has to deal with. About two Mm. years into a new government, two or three years, that's the end. After that, they never pass any constitutional reform. So if we assume that there'll be a Labour government next time, which is the most likely outcome, I think the key thing now is to try to push Starmer into a situation where he'll pledge at least some kind of constitutional inquiry or investigation. You could call it like the Clean Up Parliament Act or something like that, of just not so much asking him to come up with solutions now because they won't be interesting and they won't be good and they won't be thoughtful, but to just create the kind of forum where when he's in charge, he has the pressure to do something in those first couple of years. That, to me, is the key. And if there is hope, it lies in achieving Mm -hmm. that. And it's cheap relatively as well like it's not like building like 100 <laughs> hospitals like it doesn't it doesn't actually cost a great deal 
it's very cheap. I think that their problem with it is that they sort of think, I mean, first of all, they never want to get rid of their power once they have it. So sure. once they've got the power, you're always fighting against their instinct. But secondly, they think that it doesn't really win them any votes. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that that is a failure of sort of advertising imagination that actually if you sell this stuff right, as we're cleaning up parliament, we're dealing mm -hmm. with our grotty and broken system. We're creating a country that works. It we're is draining the swamp. Is that, yeah, exactly. Exactly <laughs> that. You're draining the swamp. But it's, you know, it is not a separate issue to why you have a long wait at A&E. It's not a separate issue to the degrading of the schools. These things happen because of the constitutional system. And actually, it is not beyond the wit of an imaginative uh, and successful politician to make that connection in people's minds, to make it evocative, and to make it part of a broad political agenda for improving the country. I do think he could be open to that kind of message. I do think that is a door that could be open, and people have to just put that pressure on him. Because if it doesn't happen soon, we're just going to see a continuation of the absolute muck and inadequacy that we've been living with for several years now. Mm -hmm. Well, we can only cross our fingers. Ian, it's been such a pleasure speaking <laughs> to you today. Uh, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. You can get it from our uh, bricks and mortar store. You can get it from our online shop. You can also get it from your local independent bookstore, um, wherever that may be. Um, it's been such fun. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, man. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>